0: I take a backpack with me with a few Bluetooth, you know, battery powered speakers. I'm playing sometimes in the very spots where these people worked in old, you know, former mines, for example. there's a small cave called Robinson's Cave, which is the birthplace of the United Mine Workers. And we're listening to people talk about those places, you know, so there's a haunting quality there, but it's against the contemporary backdrop of a now thriving forest that feels almost like it's taking over um, in really wonderful ways. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where
1: we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with sound artist and ethnographer, Brian Harnetti listening is perhaps even more important than composing to Brian. What he loves to do is capture the essence of a place through his art. And his work therefore involves venturing into towns and landscapes armed with his microphone and recording everything from ambient sounds to oral histories. It also involves in-depth research in archives and libraries to discover a community's often forgotten history, images, and archival recordings. The geographic area to which he's most devoted is Appalachian, Ohio. His parents and their forebears hail from those mountains, and though he currently lives a 90-minute drive away in Columbus, Ohio, over the years he spent a lot of time in the area. So not only has he gained a deep understanding of its landscape and people, but he's also earned the community's trust, which, as you can imagine, is an essential component of his work. Let's listen to a little bit of a piece of his titled Boy, from the album Shawnee, Ohio. May 3rd. I'm going to ask my grandma questions of the olden days. Oh, um, grandma, um, in the mines, do you know how many people died? Um, do you know anybody who was in the mines? Oh um, can you tell me three people? Can you name them? is currently a faculty fellow at Ohio State University's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery theme. To date, he has released nine albums. The influential music magazine Mojo gave two of his most recent albums, Shawnee Ohio and Words and Silences, five stars out of five. And Wire magazine placed Words and Silences at position number five on its top 10 list of 2022's Modern Composition albums. I started the interview by asking this sonic ethnographer, which came
0: first, his interest in people or in music? Well, my earliest childhood memories are around place and people, but I don't think I really process them until later. Um, So I would say composition first. I grew up uh, studying classical music and uh, composition and the ethnographic writing and techniques came much later as an adult in my 30s. I had all of these ethical questions around place, around using sound archives and sampling, and the you know anthropological methods gave me a toolkit to be able to work through some of those questions and problems. Can you give me examples of ethical questions that you had to work through? Sure. When I first started composing, I was really interested in musical borrowing. My teacher in England, uh, Michael Finnessy, was very well known for doing this. And it has a a long history going back to Charles Ives and, and beyond and before that. But I was very much interested in using borrowed musics and sampling and then creating collages out of them. And at first it felt like I could, you know, Uh, it felt very freeing and everything seemed available to me. But the ethical questions that arised out of that was, should I be using anything that I want to? (laughs) And are the people attached to those recordings, should they be considered as well as part of a project? And so That began a long process for me to create more established relationships with both archivists and historians around particular collections, but also the families and the people that were directly connected to, either um, related to or culturally to the recordings that I used. And it completely changed the way that I thought about sampling and using archival materials, and it also completely changed what I used and how I used it. How so? How, how did that education change that? Well, for example, one of the first archival projects that I did that was more formal was in Berea, Kentucky, at the Appalachian Sound Archives there. I was invited to go there, and I was doing a lot of research in the archives, listening to many recordings, and in particular, the recordings of a woman named Addie Graham, she was in her 90s um, in the 1970s when these recordings were made, and I just fell in love with her voice and her personality. And it was just a few days later that I I went to a, a party <laughs> down in in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and I happened to meet her great granddaughter. And it was at that moment it was you know it was like a revelation or a little epiphany or something like that, where I was like, oh, of course, the recordings are connected to people. They're not just inanimate objects. They actually have their own agency and they can be activated. And that there are people that are deeply affected by these recordings because it reminds them of their family members or of a place or time. And so that was a way for me to think, uh, how can I involve community members in my projects? How could I think of them as my main audience? How can I return what I've made back and to share it with them and to get their feedback? And also getting their permission is a, a really big a piece of it too. So for example, when I worked with the Sun Ra El L. Saturn collection in, in Chicago, which was all based on the experimental jazz composer and band leader Sun Ra, I entered a a contract with the archive and also with Sun Ra's nephew, who was the holder of the trust and copyright. Oh, I'd like to hear more about that. What's, What's involved in building trusts with those
1: people whose archives and interviews you might use?
0: Sure. Well, I'll use my work in Appalachian, Ohio as a as an example, because that's been the longest relationship. And also this brings it back to the ethnographic writing and, and thinking. In 2010, I first started to visit Appalachian, Ohio, which is where my both of my parents' families are from, but I'm not from there. So I was a bit of an outsider, but with like an introduction card from my family members.
1: How far is Columbus from there?
0: It is uh, not far. It's about an hour and a half from there. So. but culturally a different world, I'm guessing very different world, much more rural. It's in the foothills of um, the Appalachian Mountains. You know, ironically, Ohio is you know over one third of its states are or of its counties are part of Appalachia. but oftentimes it's not really thought of as or it's looked over as being part of Appalachia. And It also has a, a long labor history around extraction and mining, um, which is, ties it in with that, that region as well, and a, a, perhaps an earlier one starting in the 19th century. But anyways, I had um, started to do um, some ethnographic research in the region, but it quickly became the story of place, but also of the people that were there, and then my own family history of, of that place. And specifically, I focus on the sounds of a place. So, I call it sonic ethnography. Um, there's a, a long history of that too, but it's really using sound as a tool to understand a place and its people um, and how they understand themselves and derive meaning you know, from that place and the culture. And so... The time there started in 2010, and what started off as a as a scholarly project, where I'm just deeply paying attention to people and places, I'm hanging out. Uh, I'm going to public meetings, um, to festivals, to parties, and then I'm making friends. And you have a microphone the whole time. <laughs> yeah, not the whole time, and certainly not at first. It can be quite intimidating, and I didn't want to you know, come across as being someone just coming down to take something and then splitting. And so I spent a lot of time building those relationships up, getting permission to do interviews and talking. And then I just started asking whether people had made recordings themselves of their family members or oral histories of the region. And that led to essentially an informal archive of tape recordings of about 40 cassettes of of people that they shared that with me. And then I digitized that. Um, and then that became the basis of numerous creative projects in the region that explored that history of extraction, the silencing of the indigenous population there and the extermination of them essentially, and also environmental uh, destruction and recovery and economic booms and busts and and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of, of very rich difficult, but also often very beautiful material that was there. And using ethnographic writing and paying attention and participatory practices allowed me to not be a part of the community, but to um, have a a meaningful and respectful relationship with the community members. What did you learn along the way that you didn't know, even though you had grandparents who grew up there? The long term destruction (laughs) of the land, you know, it's ever since, I guess, you know, mostly European, mostly white settlement 200 years ago, there's been extraction of one form or another, be it first the timber, iron ore, clay, obviously gas and oil, and and the latest iteration is hydraulic fracturing or, or fracking. And then just the really strong. Pride of the people in in the land, and how this long history of labor struggles. I mean, it was it was the very place in the 1880s where um, the United Mine Workers was formed, and so it has a very strong, very interesting past that is often overlooked in that way. And then the other really surprising thing is its is its recovery and and resilience. You know, by the 1920s, the the entire area was completely clear cut. There weren't any old growth trees left, and I can't think of a more sort of desolate understanding of extraction than that. But at the same time, as part of the New Deal, Franklin Delano Roosevelt decided to declare the area a national forest, even though there weren't any trees there, which is a really huh. bizarre <laughs> social experiment right. if you, if you th- really think about it. But as part of that initiative, they reseeded the entire area, and now it's a forest where the trees are almost 90 years old. And so it's not old growth, but it very well can be you know, in the coming decades and, and uh, centuries. So I, that to me was a, a spark of hope in the region that I found very heartening.
1: What about the communities of people? Are they regenerating in some way?
0: Yes and no. I mean, I think that it has um, had many decades of economic decline alongside that environmental degradation. But there are these pockets of of communities that have been uh, rallying around both the environmental benefits that have been happening. So, acid mine drainage mitigation efforts have really brought back a lot of uh, the natural flora and fauna that used to be there. And then economic development around what I like um, is people-centered, community-centered economies, not relying on large companies to come in and um, offer a few temporary jobs at the expense of you know extraction and most of the money leaving the region, but. Uh, smaller communities focusing on, for example, telling retelling the history stories of the place, or in, uh, focusing on environmental recreation and that kind of stuff, um, that really bring more people to the region and allow people to stay that might have moved away otherwise. How over the years have you cultivated this practice of listening? What's what's involved? Well, it's on a few different levels. I mean, I mean the most. Basic level in a way is is to make field recordings um, is just to go out into places and to listen through a pair of headphones and see what that's like. That's one way. Another way is focusing on research, trying to listen to uh, photographs or <laughs> archival recordings and so forth. That's been an important part. But perhaps most importantly is to forge long-term relationships um, with key community members and then keep coming back so if you go in you know with all of your ideas rigidly thought through that won't allow you to accept another person or reveal your own vulnerability almost and if you're truly listening you are doing that you are in a vulnerable position you're both speaking and, you know, taking in what other people are saying and you're not sort of like formulating your answers, you know, too fast. (laughs) Yeah. So there's like a whole host of tools that you can use, but the coming back piece and the time piece in connection to the community members might be the most important. And it feels like, unfortunately, most artists are unable to do that, right? They have to move on. They can only stay in a place for a few weeks or a few months and then they have to move on to another project. So I feel very fortunate that I've been able to spin out with the same relationships a, a series of projects in the region that um, have allowed me to keep coming back. Now this also means that I've become <laughs> very much uh, connected to a lot of the nonprofits in the region, and in fact I've I've done a lot of work with them, um, and also sit on a board of a nonprofit and have become not a full member because I, I don't live there and I, I don't think I've maybe spent enough time, but maybe a, a friend of the community in Shawnee and the and the surrounding towns. Speaking of listening, what's been the reaction when members of the community have
1: listened to your
0: projects? Well, the perhaps most amazing experience was that uh, we created this project called Shawnee, Ohio, um, and we premiered it in Columbus, uh, at the Wexner Center for the Arts, which is a much more uh, formal, you know, arts venue, and it was wonderful to see so many people from Appalachian Ohio come to a venue like that. And the Q and A session afterwards was really wonderful. But then the next day, we took it down to Shawnee um, and performed it in an old, you know, century-old theater that's there. In fact, this was a theater where my grandfather, you know, used to play music in um in the 1920s. Oh, he was a musician as well? Yeah, I mean he he uh was the captain of the basketball team, so they'd all play basketball on the floor, the flat floor of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> but then he was also in the orchestra. So then they'd put the chairs all back and and have concerts there as well. So that theater was was very special obviously to to me but also to the community. And I feel like half the town showed up uh, we had a big potluck, you know. Everyone's sitting around, <laughs> eating and uh, drinking coffee or beer or whatever, and it just felt very celebratory. And then afterwards, everyone talked about the images that they saw and the recordings that they heard, how they might relate to them, whether they saw a relative of theirs in the in the photographs, and it was just an extraordinarily special moment that um, I was able to witness. And it, it spurred me on to many other projects where I wanted to work with listening directly uh, and the community. For example, a, a project called Forest Listening Rooms, which is a much more deeply socially engaged project where I'm just taking community members into the Wayne National Forest just to listen. Uh, we listen to in silence. We, we listen to archival recordings again of people that lived there before and then we listen to each other. Do you listen to the
1: archival recordings
0: in the forest, or is that a yes. separate? Yeah, I oh <laughs> I take a backpack with me with a few Bluetooth, you know, battery powered speakers. I'm playing sometimes in the very spots where these people worked in old, you know, former mines, for example. There is a small cave called Robinson's Cave, which is the birthplace of the United Mine Workers. And we're listening to people talk about those places. You know, So there's a haunting quality there, but it's against the contemporary backdrop of a now thriving forest that feels almost like it's taking over um, in really wonderful ways. So you are able to hold both the sort of cautionary tales of the past, but also the pride in the land and, and people's work there, and also the, the hope uh, that's happening in the present moment for um, the region's future. And what have you learned in
1: forced listening rooms? What's been surprising to you in that process? Uh,
0: well, at first, the surprising thing shouldn't have been surprising at all was that no one really wanted to follow uh, me into the woods <laughs> 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 at first just to go listen, right? It's It seems a little bit crazy. So I had to go undergo a process of, of rethinking what a forced listening room meant. The first thing I did was I became an AmeriCorps volunteer for the year in Shawnee. That just got me on the streets and working in Shawnee every day, you know for for a year. And of course, you're going to meet people and and bond with them during that time. The second thing was is that I didn't try to have a huge gathering of people right away. I decided to meet local residents on their own terms. So, um, for example, someone might invite me to their house. And then we'd go out in their backyard and listen for a bit. Someone invited me to um, their childhood play area, which was had been, um, you know, strip mined and was destined to become strip mined again. And so they were expressing their concerns over that. And I also went out with um, people that I call almost like unusual allies—people that might be on the opposite end of the political spectrum from me or think very differently culturally so for example i went out hunting <laughs> i wasn't hunting but i went out with a hunter with hunters as they were hunting and i had my shotgun microphone and they had you know their shotguns with them and just observing how respectful they were of these public lands i feel
1: like every small community should have a Brian Harnetti (laughs) working and living in it. But yeah, as you mentioned, that's very difficult for artists to achieve staying rooted in a smaller community. So what do you think would make it easier for artists like you to be rooted in a community and stay
0: in constant communication and collaboration with that community like you do? Well, I mean, as an artist, I recognize that there's a lot of pressure for artists to get out there, to get their names known, to be in a large cultural center like New York or LA or Chicago or something like that, um, and to, to make their mark. I mean, it, it, it makes sense to me. But I also recognize that at some point, it's also an option to be able to stay to stay in more rural places, to stay in places that you might have connections to with your you know family history, and to make work there too, um, and that is just as valid you know and and interesting as anything else. That would be my biggest thing: is don't be afraid to stay and see what might come of it. That's certainly been been my journey. You know, when I was living in, in the UK, I just figured that I would just stay there <laughs> or be in Europe somewhere. Um, and in fact, you know, many of my friends stayed on and moved to Berlin or, or other, you know, Paris or whatever. And that sounded so wonderful to me. But I had a teacher who said, wait a minute, I think you have something you need to address back home. And um, maybe you could just spend a little time there and, and figure it out. And of course, I've been doing that for 20 years now. So I think it's really good to, to go away for a while. I think it's also really good to not be afraid to invest your efforts into those local things too because um, there's so much meaning and so many rich stories to be explored. And artists have a really wonderful and unique way of understanding the world. And community members of these small communities do appreciate it, especially when it's done with a certain amount of stewardship and mutual respect. And could you talk about any current or upcoming projects that you're particularly excited about? Well, like I said, the current project that I'm working on right now is called Words and Silences. It's a, a sonic portrait of the Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, who died in 1968. And we just had the premiere uh, last week, actually, at the Western Center for the Arts in Columbus. It was a magnificent experience. Um, I'm still sort of like high on a cloud um, about it all. Describe the experience. Why was it so magical? Well, um, I did most of the composing just before the pandemic, um, and the musicians all sent me their parts through the internet. So um, I wasn't able to see them when I made the album. And so when we all got together, it's um, for myself on piano and a quartet of um, trumpet, trombone, alto sax, uh, flute, and um, bass clarinet. When we all got together to practice and rehearse it, it was just so wonderful to hear everything in person, of course. And the musicians were just, you know, they were really top-notch musicians. So I, they made me a better musician, and it just made, you know, the performance really special. And then the next day, because I'm so interested in the idea of place, I took the whole band down with me um, to... Thomas Merton's Hermitage, um, which is in Kentucky, um, about forty minutes outside of Louisville, and we performed the entire work in his Hermitage, um, in the very place where the recordings that I used of him, you know, were made. And so there's like a real sense of place of the architecture of the building and the sonic acoustics of it informing our own performance. And also, you know, the fields and the woods around. And that was just a very special, special moment. That was a crucial part of the project. Yes. Did you record that session? We did. We we definitely documented it with both video and and audio. I'm not sure what will become of that, but it just felt like such an urgent need to do it that we decided to make it and then figure that out later. (laughs) How it might live in the world. And in terms of looking at your career as a socially engaged artist, what do you,
1: I hate asking this question because it always, I hate for my guests to feel like they're filling out a grant application, but what, yeah, what is the change you think you most want to influence?
0: Yeah, I think you are right. It's almost impossible to measure. And certainly with a project, for example, like Forest Listening Rooms, it might take decades to even see impact that I am not even part of, but just impact in the region. And so first and foremost, I mean, I feel as if if I could be a witness to a lot of the community members' efforts to revitalize and recover the land and the economy there, I think that that's something that shows, it gives amplification to the voices that are already there without me having to add my own Ego or commentary on it, so that's something that I've been very interested in. And so, for example, uh, a woman that I uh, did a forest listening room session with, her name was Jolene Dixon. Um, She was part of a community that was fighting against a new strip mine taking place in the forest. And I walked with her, and we, you know, made a beautiful little film with her, and her voice became part of the project. And I didn't have any impact on this. But I was able to witness it that eventually through their efforts, the you know, Ohio Department of Natural Resources backed away from that new coal mining effort. So I felt very proud to just be there. But I wouldn't lay claim to it as, you know, part as as the project was did that. But the project was just present. And I think I think that for impact, that's about as good as it can get um, in, in a really nice way. It's very
1: humble this idea that that your listening is more important than your your work than your noise making as it were.
0: Yeah, I I forget the actual quote there's there was a composer named Alvin Lucier where he, he said something like, you know, careful listening is is more important than virtuosic playing. That's my paraphrase, but to me that makes total sense that you know, sometimes just just getting out of the way and listening can be a, a just as a meaningful um, sonic listening experience as trying to compose something very carefully. You know, <laughs> they both have their place. But uh, when I realize that sometimes the more I get out of the way, the more exciting it becomes. There's really there's really something there. If you'd like to learn more about Brian and read a
1: longer version of this interview please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Be sure to subscribe or follow us so you'll get alerted each time a new episode is published. And if you know of an extraordinary artist change maker in your neck of the woods, I hope you let me know. You can find me on Instagram at PCTalenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Kenan Institute of the Arts, thank you for listening. John Winterberg, thanks for letting me do this, bye.